Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Fantastic Mr. Podcast. Uh, today, with my good buddies uh, Jake and Zach, we're going to be talking about the 1940s. So this is another, what do we call this thing? Uh, movies of the movies decade. Movies by the decade. Movies by the decade. Because it's going back 20th, in time. Our 20th and final episode of season one. So this will be our big finale that's going to be the same as our other episodes format wise nothing's going to change so uh let's get ready to talk about the 40s was a quote from family guy that remember the 40s thing oh yeah oh. You're, wel- you're welcome by the way what's the context of that what's the context oh. of that oh. they say, um, remember the 40s because the 40s? in the at the beginning of the episode they're watching the show called jag which is about a um i think a navy lawyer and but nobody's watching it except for old people and so they look at the camera in the show <laughs> and go remember the 40s and it's really funny it's like how's that hip doing there Remember the 40s? Because only old people watch that show. (laughs) So today we're talking about the 1940s, film in the 1940s. And so um, some pretty heavy hitters in the 40s, including Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock, um, for sure. Uh, So um, quickly, though, I would like to, since now we are officially caught up with our episodes, instead of stacking, we can... We can make an episode, put it out, make an episode, put it out. Um, Tonight, I went to see Clerks 3, written and directed by Kevin Smith, who I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a huge fan. I know you guys probably know this, but I'm a huge fan of Kevin Smith. And so I was super excited when this was announced and then got to see it today. And let me tell you, I typically don't cry to where or feel emotion to where tears form in my eyes. But tonight I totally did. And I'm okay with that. I'm not ashamed because it was, you have to like know the clerks universe and that whole universe with Kevin Smith um, for you to feel anything for it for, because right now guys, you can't see us, but Zach and Jake don't care whatsoever about what we're, I am pleasantly bemused. Okay. Pleasantly bemused. <laughs> that sounds like an oxymoron. If I mean, I I mean one. that's awesome that you, I guess it gave it's, you emotional reaction to the, to the extent you're crying. I mean, not I, mean, I love it for you, buddy. Thanks. You guys are so sweet. I think so I've had I'm urges so, to cry before in movies, but from, I don't think I've ever had tears flowing down my face. I didn't say the they were flowing down my face, Zach. I just said they formed. A singular tear. <laughs> yeah, there was no, there was no waterfalls or anything like that. I Dang. Just, okay, then that's really, really much more emotional. Than misty. You were just holding them back. I was trying, man, but it was hard. <laughs> so okay, so from the trailers that I saw on it, it's essentially like the in-universe of the, those people making the first movie. Yeah. Right. Much. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... it's like, it's like um, the disaster artist, but yeah. about clerks. Yeah. So basically if anybody knows any Kevin Smith lore, he got his start 
on the first Clerks movie. He he wanted to make a movie. He financed the movie himself by using credit cards and selling off comic book collections and stuff like that to be able to fund the movie. He made it, took it to Sundance, and it got picked up for distribution. Now he's a big filmmaker. And the second one was just kind of a you know a middle child where they work at uh, movies, which is a fast food restaurant within the Kevin Smith universe. Um, and then this one, they at the end of the last movie, uh, Clerks Two, they end up buying the Quick Stop that they they worked at before. At bef- uh, after it had burned down, they um, they fix it up, and now that's what they're doing now. When we see them, so and then uh, not Dante. Uh, Randall has a heart attack and decides, you know, he's living on borrowed time. He's going to make a movie about working in that store. So it all comes kind of full circle um, with the whole Kevin Smith thing. So it was pretty good. And some, some pretty uh, hardcore twists and turns that you didn't see coming. So I would suggest if you haven't watched the first two, watch the first two and then watch clerks three when you get a chance. Cause it's uh, some good stuff. All right. You said this was a special event. Well, it's a Fathom event. Most Fathom events, they they release like the the classics on the big screen and the Studio Ghibli movies, and so it's only in theaters for three nights a week, kind of thing. So it's today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Um, and I went tonight right before we recorded because I have a night class tomorrow and Thursday is D and D night. So tonight was the only time i could do it i considered canceling class for it tomorrow but i canceled class last week so had to but what you're saying is he wasn't able to get distribution for this movie i mean i guess i don't know i don't know well i mean he he went through lionsgate and lionsgate you know is who is who helped him with dogma when he released dogma because the uh, miramax who released all his films before dogma said nope we're not gonna release dogma because if you know what dogma's about disney is was parent was miramax's parent company believe it or not and they were like nope we're not releasing that because it's all about you know catholicism and religion and blasphemy blah 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 blah. so um lionsgate helped them and that's who i don't know i don't know i guess they either it's just interesting that they've gone this route i guess i think that it's more like like maybe he didn't want it in theaters for that long. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what his thought process behind that was. Cause that is kind of weird that you, now that you mentioned it is like, why wouldn't you want your movie in theaters for as long as possible? I don't know. Yeah. It just seems, it just seems kind of strange to me. Yeah. I mean, if that's what he wants to do, then more, more power to him, I guess. That seems free means what he's banking on. Maybe or Blu-ray sales. Cause that's how, um, so they went through Lionsgate for the Jay and silent Bob reboot movie. Um, and so Lionsgate or yeah, Lionsgate, they sold a lot of those Blu-rays and DVDs for Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And so they were like, Hey, come make another movie. So he did clerks three. I thought that was cool. uh, pretty interesting. So anyway, I saw clerks three tonight. Okay. And that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Golf clap, golf claps all around. Thank you. And now I'm drinking a, tr- a pina colada Trulies that I don't really like. We had Delicious. we had some. I think we tried the Sonic Seltzers. Were they good? We tried the Sonic Seltzers that they've put out. Yeah, those are trash. 
Sonic, Su- you should be ashamed of yourself. Seltzers it was are disgusting. Typically, ocean disgusting water, anyway. my ass. That was awful. Seltzers are typically disgusting anyway, like the bubblies, because it's just like a bunch of soda water, like carbonated water with a little bit of flavor. It's like and- you like the whole reason you go to Sonic is to get just sugar water and yeah. diabetes, and these seltzers diabetes. took everything joyful out of that. It was except disgusting. for the alcohol. Was, my my day was ruined and my disappointment was immeasurable. Your day was ruined. Well, I'm so sorry that happened to you, Jake. Yeah. I got to see Clerks tonight. Better. I, I, I like you truly, though. It's good. Okay, anyway, guys, you guys want to talk about the 1940s? <laughs> yeah, I Let's guess. Let's go back in time. Uh, okay, so the 1940s was kind of, um, you know, we, we, we got through the 30s. That's when sound was introduced, like right at the end of the 20s, basically the 30s. And now we're kind of finding our footing in the 40s. You know, 1939 was when The Wizard of Oz came out. Huge movie. Um, and then we hit 1940s and some, you know, bigger like we got Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, uh, some other big names in, in movies. So what do you guys, uh, let's start with uh, you guys and see what y'all want to talk about with the movies in the 1940s. Let's start with uh, Zach, since I apparently have to tell you guys are acting like my students. I'm well, I did a little more research after, after um, my the delay or something. Oh, 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 that's what it is. Going I'm, I'm so confused <laughs> okay there's a delay apparently jake uh so i'm not at my house i'm at a friend's house house sitting but her internet is better than mine but not that much better like it's it's uh i don't remember the delays at your place to be honest yeah, yeah i don't remember would, delay at your place yeah the le- delays there there were no delays it would just freeze <laughs> like, like you knew it was frozen so we could um, still hear you though. I mean, it's the, we, that was the thing. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. I yeah, was, we could hear you. I would have kept talking. Okay. Um, All right. Start so over again. Yeah. yeah. Let's just start uh, back at you, Jake, when you were saying you did a little more research and blah, 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 blah. It's because oh, yeah. I don't need to say everything else I said before. Right. Yeah. So for this decade, I decided to do just a little bit more research moderate a moderately tiny bit more amount of research than my last time because last time i did no research whatsoever (laughs) and so uh i started looking up some like the best films from the 1940s you know there's like a list like the top 50 films and then i just perused through those that seemed interesting and i went out and see if i could i wanted to find see if i could find them out on you know on the internet somewhere so i ended up watching um rebecca which is the 1940s best picture winner directed by alfred hitchcock it's about a woman who is um she becomes uh the wife of a wealthy man and she's living in the shadow of his deceased wife Uh, it's kind of a romance slash psychological thriller she wasn't named rebecca the ex-wife was named rebecca she's always living oh. rebecca shadow um but it won best picture and i wanted to watch that one because the year following and i'm sure we're going to talk lots about it came citizen kane which is widely considered to be the best film ever made um you know it was revolutionary and it changed the way we made films so i wanted to w- compare the differences between the 1940s best picture winner and then citizen kane to see if 
there's really that much of a difference. Um, and I also ended up watching Fantasia because I didn't realize it, but that was from the 1940s as well. So it was kind of interesting having these three different uh, genres of films. So the one hand, you've got, you know, kind of a the classic 1940s, you know, thriller piece. Not really a thriller. Um, they don't really do. Nothing was very thrilling about it, actually. It was cut up. So you had like the, the classic 1940s film, Citizen Kane. And then entirely different was like Fantasia, which is like Disney and colorful and happy and everything like that. So I watched a few, a few things for this session. That's cool. Um, and it was interesting. Citizen Kane obviously is incredible. Um, Defining. And it is surprising when you, if you're not expecting it, because you expect to kind of like if you've watched um, earlier films. And how I felt when I watched Rebecca, I felt like it could have been shortened. I felt like Rebecca could have been cut in half and it still could have been just as good. Uh, you know, kind of thing of this very sharp. Um, and I imagine at the time uh, that that was like pretty incredible for the audiences, especially if they were used to kind of these. Um, talk and not show type movies where his movie was definitely show mm-hmm. don't don't tell you know okay. i read that some people had walked out of the theater in the middle of the movie of citizen kane just because of the the bizarreness of some aspects but then again i don't know how common walking out of theaters was back in the day because i thought it was more of a luxury than in it than anything i just anyone could just go to the afford to go to the theater to the yeah. cinema well, I certainly know that um, William Hurst, who was uh, kind of the owner of, well, Hearst is a media company still today. They're one of the largest ones today. And they so own local TV news idea. stations. Yeah. Um, William Hurst, the owner, certainly didn't like Citizen Kane and, um, and actually wrote about him a ton in his papers, which ironically was kind of what... Citizen Kane was giving some commentary on because he was um, yeah. this kind of enigmatic, narcissistic newspaper tycoon who wrote his own news and created the stories. And that's how his character came to fame. So it was kind of funny, the parallelism between this character and the real life. That's, that's funny. <laughs> well, I think Orson Welles claimed that it wasn't about uh, was William Randall Hearst, right? William Randolph first. Yes. Randolph, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, he claimed that it wasn't about him, but yeah, there were very like striking similarities to everything about the two, which I thought was yeah, kind of funny. But it was interesting just comparing the differences of the film because on the one hand, I think Rosebud was it was like two and a half hours long, and it felt like it. Whereas Citizen Kane, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was over before it before I felt it began. I could have watched more of it. What year was that movie, Citizen Kane? Citizen Kane was nineteen forty one. Forty one. Yeah. Um, and that was Orson Welles. Actually, it's Orson Welles' first picture. He was twenty five. Yeah. Um, wow. Orson Welles. That's what got, kicked off his career. 
Yeah, he got pretty lucky um, when it came to them just kind of this young filmmaker and they're like, here, take our money, do whatever you want. <laughs> that's essentially what he got to do for the, I mean, that's kind of like the auteurs of, you know, today with like such as Kevin Smith or Paul Thomas Anderson or Wes Anderson, they can kind of wake whatever they want. And he got lucky back then. Cause that was kind of freedom there. Yeah. yeah. And it was really unheard of back then for that to happen. Especially for really, yeah, it wasn't. There wasn't a bunch of this. Take our money, you know, make as many films as you want, and do whatever. You have full creative control, kind of thing. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of that. I guess that's why it kind of stood out. For it. I mean, for yeah. me, it was the cinematography, the the shots that was like, wow, I never haven't seen those before in a black and white movie. Yeah, I can't imagine how the audiences reacted. Yeah, and I think I mentioned this last time. And I and I've looked this up several times since then, and I have not been able to find a concrete a- a answer. But if I remember correctly, I think he used a higher ISO film than what was traditionally used, and that's what allowed him to create those kind of shots. Um, because he didn't need as much light, and he could have darker shots and still get the information that he needed. And again, I have not been able to confirm that, but that's what I remember reading somewhere. Interesting. Well, let's see. Since we're on this topic of Citizen Kane, you guys can hear me, right? I'm coming in. Yes. Yep. Clearly. Okay. Thank you. Um, we'll just spout off some things about Orson Welles and um, kind of how he got to make Citizen Kane, if that's okay with you guys, since we're talking about it already. Um, let's see. So, he was considered a child prodigy in other words um i guess he was like really smart he uh he spent most of his childhood in chicago both his parents died by the time he was 15 um he directed produced and acted in several theater adaptations of shakespeare's plays um and then he did in 1938 did war of the worlds which if we Mm. talked we talked about this before um in, on this show, uh, it was a radio show in which um, it was about aliens invading, I think, New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. He, yeah, he, he did a narrative play yeah. on the novel War of the Worlds, but mm-hmm. he made it as if it was a real news broadcast. And, and it, he, yeah. they played, they actually, you know, broke into was what the audience thought was alive. You know, yeah, they broke into what they thought, but the audience, but the audience thought it was a live production, and they yeah. they read it out as if it was newsreels coming in in real time. Um, really, really, really cool art piece, art like just the way that he thought was. Yeah. I love it. I'm just gonna yeah. say, I'm just gonna. I love. It. No, it is great. It, it is really cool to listen to. Um, and then authentic, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was so authentic that people thought we were really they were really attacking New Jersey, that Martians were really. And then, of course, we know that we've had two movies made, um, one older, one newer. I forget when the older one was released, uh, but it actually looks really good. I remember uh, showing the it. The 50s. To my, billion. Yeah, that's what I thought. I remember showing it to my class and then showing them the newer one, of course, with Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning. Um, and the newer one looks cool. Um, but yeah, the older one looked really good. Um, I thought the older one was truer to the 
to this original story. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I was so and Wells had to issue a public apology the next morning because people were so scared. They thought New Jersey had been attacked by aliens. It's like if they're going to attack, they're not going to. That was the Germans. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, and then that's that's kind of what got Orson Wells into the spotlight was that that show because um, he was able to make it so sound so real and authentic. So RKO Pictures, which um, offered Wells complete creative freedom. In addition to his salary, Wells received 25% of the film's gross earnings, which, you know, we don't see that very often, even now. Like, the only person I know of now that really does that is Robert Downey Jr., um, or at least he did when he was part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, So, yeah, we don't see a lot of directors and actors, you know, getting part of the earnings of, of movies. Not all the time, anyway. But back then, it was really unheard of. So, um, so the original title, Citizen Kane, was American. So he began work on American, which is the original title. Uh, the film is based on part of the, on um, in part on the life of wealthy newspaper William uh, tycoon William Randolph Hearst, um, who let's see, um, he what they say he practiced yellow journalism, which uh, if you know what that is. It's where he kind of what's it called? What's the word? Sensational. It's sensationalism. Yeah, he sensationalizes everything. And then Hearst had banned any word of the film from his papers. It was not advertised. People didn't know any. Didn't know it was even playing. Um, and he they he even offered RKO to destroy all the prints equal to the production cost. So that was he, God. Imagine if they had agreed to that. I mean, yeah, we wouldn't have Citizen Kane, or at least. I don't think we would. I mean, that if if they had agreed to that and destroyed everything, how far back do you think that would have set the film industry? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't think that far back, but you know, it's not. It's possible that you know Orson Welles just does it again. You know, yeah, with a different project. <laughs> yeah, with a different project, and just calls it something else and and just does it again i mean i that's what i would think would happen maybe Um, that's true but i mean yeah it could be a few more years since we got citizen kane you know maybe in the 50s we wouldn't we wouldn't get it till then um but let's see and then later hearst uh developed an all-out attack on the film in his papers so he attacked the film uh through his papers which makes sense because he was pissed Um, the film was received well by the critics and the press, but failed at the box office because nobody knew it was playing, I assume, right? Because it wasn't Man. in the papers. <laughs> so, but over time, people recognized the greatness. And around the 60s, it started to become known as the best film ever made. And um, it's still American Film Institute's number one, fa- number one film. I actually need to look that up because the research I'm looking at um could be kind of old but i bet i bet that's still true at least in the top five but i would think it's still number one right what's interesting to me about the 1940s is it just felt like citizen can't be an example there was just so much going on at the time like you mentioned that it was really getting on its feet and you're so right because mm-hmm. at the same time as as like citizen kane and these like film noirs there was also like the popularization of technicolor film 
and also like a a whole bunch of comedies going on at the same time. It really feels like the 40s are when film genres exploded. Yeah. Yeah, because the 30s was like, you know, we, we had just gotten sound and so we're getting a lot of you know, dramas and musicals mostly. Um, and so we were kind of able to branch out a little more in the forties and, and create other things. Um, and, and it's all in, you know, most of it's in, in color. Cause you know, at that time we started having some color, at least with the wizard of Oz and started experimenting with that. But of course we know citizen Kane is in black and white. That's all I got about. Well, that's not all I got. Yeah. The forties are, there are a lot, there are a lot of, uh, musicals you know, like i, I mm-hmm. watch every year holiday Inn, which is a 1942 film with uh, bing crosby fred astaire and a bunch of other famous actors and slash singers at the time and it was interesting a lot of artists uh you know such as bing crosby one of the the i guess golden age crooners who kind of inspired the likes of frank sinatra and uh, uh many other singers in the future i mean he was also an actor in a ho- many films and Holiday Inn is uh, now a Christmas uh, themed uh, movie for the most part. And b- many people kind of confuse it for white Christmas and they have kind of similar uh, plot lines to a degree, even though white Christmas is made in the fifties, I believe. But I thought it was interesting how there's the, a prevalence of musicals, whereas these days they're not as common. It's also right. interesting, um, speaking of Christmas films, some, some other classic Christmas films came out of the 1940s as well. Um, it's a Wonderful Life came out yes. in the 40s. Jimmy Stewart. Was, Love yeah, 1946. Good and man. then The Miracle on 34th, 34th Street. Street. I, almost, I almost said 31st Street. <laughs> miracle the miracle on, on 34th Street. On Elm Street. Well. Yeah, I've only seen that one. Both of those once. are considered classics. I've yeah. never seen Miracle on 4th Street, but I have seen Absolutely. It's a I Wonderful Life. My, I've seen what, both because my parents are old. It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, you got to be mentally prepared for that movie. I, it's such a emotionally draining film and the arc of the family that's just so distressed and going through all these these hoops. But it's, I think it's kind of a, a nice picture of a family um, and the struggles that they go through. Yeah. You know, I saw um, It's a Wonderful Life at Murray's Dinner Playhouse in Little Rock. So if if we have we talked about this on the show before? Briefly about yeah. the, the dinner yeah. theater. Yeah. So it's a dinner theater. You go eat and watch theater, but it's a very small playhouse, but it's really kind of charming. But they did a a version of it's a wonderful life, but it was like a radio show. So it's kind of like we're watching, sitting there watching a radio show because they were holding their scripts and it was a little confusing at first. Cause I'd never seen anything like that. Um, but then I was like, Oh, so we're watching the radio show as it's going on because, you know, they're making the sound effects in front of us and uh, they're holding their scripts like they're on a show, radio show. It was really cool uh, once I understood kind of what was going on, because that's the first time I had ever been there. So I didn't know anybody really did stuff like that. Um, but it was It's a Wonderful Life. The guy um, sounded like Jimmy Stewart, you know, he's interesting. Sounded, yeah, he sounded a lot like him. It was really for that. Yeah, he was. I was like, you have to, you don't have to sound like Jimmy Stewart just because he played the role in the movie, but you know, whatever. So they, that's what the choice they went with. Um, but it, it was, it was really cool. The food was just okay, but the show was, the show was a lot better than the food. That's for sure. <laughs> um, um, if you, great review, thanks. The show, I don't the show think is we, better than the food. This far, we've gotten this far. I don't think either of you have 
actually discussed what movies you've watched from the 40s. I watched Citizen Kane. I didn't actually watch movies this time around because I have been working on my classes. So my plan was to talk about Citizen Kane and the uh, cool things it did, not just about it, but I also have a few like things that uh, Orson Welles did that kind of revolutionized filmmaking, not just story-wise. Cause if you think about Citizen Kane and the story, like it's, it's an okay story. You know what yeah. I mean? Like the first time I watched it was in, and I'm sure I've said this before. And I think I've said, I've said this before, like four times in this, this specific episode, but I uh, apologize. Um, but Oh crap. What was I saying? Oh yeah. I see. I, I watched citizen came for the first time in film school and we just watched it. Like we didn't learn about it. They were just like, all right, here's citizen came. And I was like, that movie sucked. Like, I don't <laughs> like it. I was like, that movie was so boring, but then I taught it. Right. I taught it in high school or as a high school teacher and learned more about it. Um, and the things that that Orson Welles did that was different than what you were actually seeing, you know, because we we have a lot of good filmmakers, but Orson Welles was kind of taking it to a whole nother, a whole excuse me, a whole other level. Um, so he he did things like he had some cool like reflection shots. So like uh, an example is like the Hall of Mirrors that he walks into and you just kind of see all these. If I remember correctly, it's a bunch of reflections of himself. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but um, so he does a lot of cool things with mirrors. Um, he he does a lot of cool things with with lower angles. So instead of like a lower angle and you see just the maybe the person as in like, you know, because with low angles, it's in filmmaking, it's kind of um, related to like evil you know, power yeah. and all this stuff. But with, with, it, with him, you could see like the ceilings and stuff. It wasn't about, mm-hmm. about people being powerful. It was just, it was just an, an interesting shot. Yeah. I remember, um, cause I read a little about it. There was one scene where he wanted the angle so low, the camera couldn't physically get, cause yeah. these were large kids at the time. It couldn't physically get to the angle he wanted. So he actually built a raised platform put the camera underneath the floor yeah. and shot through a hole in the floor to so get he, the angle that he wanted. That's the kind of man that he was. He would go through, you know, go through so much process, so much pain to just get a shot that he wanted. Yeah. Just That's dedication. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, he did a lot of cool stuff with, with beams of light um, such as the, the scene where he's giving a, that big speech and instead of like an actual audience there, you got a big matte painting behind them and then you have a matte painting in front of them, but it's got a bunch of holes poked in it with light shining through to make it look like people are moving. Um, really interesting shot. Now that you know, like, like what it is, you know, like, oh, that's a, you know, wide shot of an audience. It's like, nah, dude, that's all him. He's the only one in that scene. But <laughs> He's, you know, it looks like he's got this big audience because I think at the time in the movie, he's he's running for for office, if I remember correctly. And so he's given us a speech about it and all this stuff. Um, And then we have uh, instantaneous leaps in time. So there's like like scenes where you're you're with them at one point in time and then all of a sudden you're with them at another point in time. Um, he kind of jumps through time a lot in that movie. And so I don't know if that's like revolutionary or not, but he did it a lot in that movie. Cause you know, that movie is the, the life of, of what's the, um, 
Charles Foster Kane. Sorry, Citizen Kane. I think that's one of the things that make it feel so modern today. Yeah, I would agree. Time jumps, because if you watch a lot of the other films, I say a lot of other films, if you watch a lot of other films during that time or even up through the 50s, 60s and 70s, they didn't have a firm grasp on what the audience could understand. So like if they went somewhere, if someone walked into a building, they showed the person walking into the building. They actually change scenes by having someone physically, you know, go to a new location, having a car drive away and then the next shot having a car drive up. You know, they visually handed it to the the viewer whereas films today have an understanding that okay the audience is smart enough to understand if there's a jump if we cut this out we understand that oh this person walked into an office building we don't have to physically show them do it yeah we don't um, yeah that's true i didn't think about that um so he just kind of did it you know he was like you know they'll figure it out or they won't <laughs> you know yeah i think that's one of the reasons it feels as modern, modern as it does yeah i would agree um and then we have he does a lot of long takes so there wasn't a lot of long takes back then either um then you see movies now like like anything you know wes anderson or birdman um with michael keaton let's just like these great long takes and a lot of times it was cutting back and forth at least back then um and so that was something he did that was a little different not too much differently um Oh yeah, he did a lot of um, what's called uh, like framing, like uh, I forget the technical term, but it's like framing inside of a doorway. No, like not like whenever you frame inside of a doorway or a window or something. He did a lot of that too. Like I think if I if I remember correctly, and this is a long take as well. At the beginning, I think he goes. Doesn't he come from outside and go into the the house? through a window but you can see in the window and there the characters are framed inside the window inside cool. the camera it's called frame within a frame that's what it's called it just came to me yeah. so you yeah so you have the camera frame and then you have like say a doorway that someone's standing in so they're being framed within a frame um and so he did a lot of that um which is pretty cool um like it's not super i don't know if it's revolutionary or anything but it is a neat trick like it's a neat if you can if you can find it the cool perspective yeah i would agree i would totally agree um and then uh, like uh you mentioned deep focus a lot of deep focus photography so instead of just seeing like right now i'm looking at jake and his background is blurred but with zach if his light was turned on i could see everything behind him because it's all in focus which is what um he that that was one of the really cool things about that movie was like they'd be standing at like the front of the newsroom and then someone would come out of an office all the way in the back and you can see it completely in focus um well in addition to that he also did a good job in creating layers in that deep focus yeah yeah totally first things he did that when he's playing outside in the snow and i believe that's one of the shots where he actually passes through a window again he starts outside comes oh, yeah. backwards in through a window to the conversation happening indoors mm-hmm. while the the child cane is being framed within a frame but he's got the son the child outside this door this room and then an additional foreground object so even within that deep focus he had these planes of interest 
Oh yeah, that, totally, totally. That made sure you were fine looking at that image because there are things for your eyes to search around for and find. Yeah, and it wasn't just like here's deep focus photography. It's like here's deep focus photography, but we got stuff in the frame too. <laughs> and you can see it all like it wasn't just him just doing a, a, a wide shot or a, not a wide shot, but like a long shot or anything. It was just it was kind of very the mise-en-scene was very like on point for Citizen Kane, I would think. So, OK, that's all I got on that. What else do you guys want to talk about? I'll talk about the movie I saw briefly. Yeah, so Notorious it. is made in 1946 and it stars Harry Grant, who is arguably one of the greatest actors of the i guess perhaps 30s through the i guess maybe early 60s he's known for many films um you know north by northwest philadelphia astoria philadelphia story and the one i saw uh, directed by alfred hitchcock notorious and it's about uh it's kind of an interesting spy slash love story uh premise um essentially uh, there's a american spy played by cary grant and he enlists the help of a the daughter of a german nazi tied scientist uh who uh, tries to find out what's going on in this organization um in brazil that consists of you know nazis that had escaped germany so it's you know 1946 a year after the war ended so it goes into the kind of the whole spy aspect of this this woman um played by ingrid bergman um and her interactions with uh the this prominent uh nazi scientist and trying to you know fall in love with him to gain his trust so that she could navigate further into learning more about this organization for Cary grant's character who's with the U.S. government. Anyways, you know, the uh, Ingrid's character you know, falls in love with Cary Grant and then falls in love with the, the Nazi uh, scientist. So there's an interesting um, okay. story going on there. And it's, it, I just enjoyed the, the melodrama and the, the, I guess, surprisingly intimate moments for a 1940s film. And between Cary Grant and Bergman's character at times just not they show the the close-ups of them kissing and pecking on the cheek I mean it, it creates uh, this sense of you know steaminess uh, for, in in a way that I've never seen in movies before 1946 or post 1946 so I, I would feel for the audience back then i bet they were like looking at each other husbands looking at their wives wives looking at their husbands and vice versa just I go, like, oh, wow uh, this is kind of <laughs> this is kind of steamy for uh wow. the, for this time and era what but is this movie called again i'm sorry notorious notorious oh yes alfred okay. hitchcock and it's on youtube to be a number of other platforms that tubi has the uh uncut uh version i think it's like around 144 so it wasn't too long but uh one thing that stood out for me were, was one of the establishing shots where you see the the stab the, the i guess the a wide shot of um a conversation happening between the the daughter of the german scientist 
who's having drinks um, in, in the same room uh, with these other um, German um, individuals. And then you have Cary Grant's character. You see the back of his head, the leading man of this uh, movie. And you don't see his face until like perhaps two or three minutes in. And it, it is the, the reveal of this immaculate looking man in a suit uh, is no, it, it is the, the reveal of Cary Grant's characters well done as far as other cinematography standouts again I mentioned the intimate moments and yeah. again they don't go go full-blown no sex that doesn't happen until probably some decades later uh, but um, I don't know I did, the, the feel of the movie uh, it was engrossing at times a bit slow but overall I enjoyed this film Ms. Cary Grant he's known for his dramatic roles but he's also known for his more comedic roles with like Jimmy Stewart um, among other actors but uh, it's a movie I would recommend yeah. folks to see in 2006 I think it was in, it was recognized by some organization as uh, one of the, the top uh, movies when it comes to I know drama slash uh, romance um, had bits of a thriller aspect as well and I like the I like a lot of the movies from this time too because they, they have ties to real world events or loose ties to real world events like such as World War II. I mean, they were even making during the 1940s movies about the war, um, yep. like the Bataan Death March. I think was one of the they, movies. Yeah, they uh, also I, did. I, it's it's got to be tough. Um, I would imagine for these. Know, companies to make movies during a time when war is already happening. But then again, I could kind of see these these movies serving as a a way to help bring in more war bonds uh, and funding for you know, the Americans and their ongoing efforts to fund and fight the the Second World War. So I I understand it from that point, but. Anyways, yeah. Notorious, it's, a, it's 1946, Cary Grant, um, Alfred Hitchcock film. It's one of the greats, I'd say. Um, not, it's not, definitely not my favorite um, 1940s film I've seen. I remember growing up, going to Hollywood Video. I, I ne- didn't go to Blockbuster often because Hollywood Video is a big one in my, where I grew up. And picking up those, those scary films, I guess horror movies from back in the day. Many of them in the, made in the 30s, but you know, like The Wolfman was, in, mm-hmm. it was, I think, 1940-something for sure. Yeah. Um, that was a big, I think at the time, kind of a strange uh, for the audience movie to kind of process this hairy beast, uh, this, this guy that turns into this um, Wolfman um, during the, the evening hours. Uh, and then turns back to normal um, after at, at that. Yeah. And th- that was one of my favorite you know, scary films and quotations. Full disclosure. I've never seen the Wolfman, Frankenstein, uh, the blob or any of those type movies. I need to watch them. You know, I own, I own Wolfman on Blu-ray as well as Frankenstein. I own a few of those scary movies. Those are, they're disturbing. I mean, in a weird way, I, I'd say in Frankenstein, which is if you're talking about the one from 1930, 1931, mm-hmm. You know, Boris Korloff, he's like the, the main guy that's known as playing Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Going to make the difference, folks. Frankenstein is the scientist. Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monster we know. That people get confused for some odd reason. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, you, you, you feel for the character of Frankenstein's monster and this 
guy that he was probably once obviously a, a human and I don't know what level in society he was, but um, I mean, through that movie, you could feel for this character that was brought to life through torment, brought back to life through torment and um, his interactions with society and eventually gets killed. Yeah. You know, in a gruesome way. I bet that was kind of weird for the audiences back in the day. Cause you know, Frank Frankenstein's monster is a monster, you know, it's kind of like the anti-hero where like people are like, Oh my God, the, I'm supposed to not like this character, but I'm kind of rooting for this character. Am I correct in that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, that's what I felt at, yeah. um, at, at first. I mean, he's busy. He's committing it. He's, he's committing violent acts. I mean, he drowns a little girl after uh, right. playing with her. And then but, that results in the town coming together to try to, to kill him. Yeah. Kill him. And yeah. they, they are successful. So that's interesting to think about because, you know, if that came out in 19 early 1930s, that's kind of when, when film was, and I know we're not talking about the thirties, but it's just interesting to think about like where, you know, a lot of films, I don't think were very, uh, had endings like that. You know, it was a lot of, you know, happy endings and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I could be wrong and it's very, it's very possible. I haven't seen every movie ever made. Um, but the, the movies that I have seen, you know, it's like, they're all happy go lucky after the fact, but you know, early thirties when sound was kind of in its infancy, it's like, they probably, I would think they would be like a little confused about like, who am I supposed to be rooting for in this situation? You know, that's interesting to think about like back then and and how movies are supposed to be, as opposed to what some of them got. It's the same with citizen Kane, you know, and notorious ends in a similar way with the happy well, just, and negative ending because you have the, you know, the, the daughter of the German scientist, you know, getting poisoned and then gets rescued by the Harry Grant's U S spy um, character. And then you have the, the German scientists being told to come back into the mansion uh, and say, Oh, because the, the Germans will do anything that they need to you know, ensure that their plans are, are covered up. So it's insinuated um, by uh, saying, we need you back in the house that he's going to get killed. And meanwhile, Cary Grant and uh, uh, the person that he was you know, taking care of and you know, fell in love with, uh, it's assumed that you know, she eventually gets better and they have a prosperous, happy life together. So it's for the, for the so-called villain, it's not so good, but for the, well, yeah, for, the for the other side, it's, it's like, Oh, fantastic. They, they get to go on with their life, but I and then the end at the end, the, I don't know. Did Citizen Kane have a big, the end slate? I don't remember, yeah, but a lot of movies back in the forties and thirties and probably even the fifties had, the symphonic the music, the dramatic music with the with the end, and yeah. hardly hardly any credits. I always found that kind of interesting. Yeah, I like the you know the transition between we get the credits, all the credits, and the music at the beginning. Then the movie starts, and at the end, we just get nothing except for the end. And then it's you know gets to a point where now we don't even get credits at the beginning. We do get credits, but it's over. 
you know, what's going on in the story. And then we get all the credits. And I think part of that might be because film crews are so much bigger now because it takes so much more money to make a movie that they need all these different positions. And back then I'm sure film crews weren't nearly as big as they are now. So it's like, it's easy to, to stick credits at the beginning, waste a good five minutes just on credits. Whereas if we tried to do it now, it would probably take, how long is it in credit take usually like 10, 15 minutes, like 15. Yeah, 15 <laughs> exactly. But so also, also the opening credits were a way of easing the audience into the kind of film that it was going to be, you know, cause music is such a, a motivator, you know, so paired with, you know, the types of images that they put on screen and the type of music that's playing audience can get a feel of whether it's going to be a happy go lucky film or a, yeah, that's, that's true film or a cowboy film or a, you know, noir. And it kind of sets the mood for these audiences, which today's audiences don't really need that. And also I don't think we'd appreciate it as much. No, they, they would, they're more impatient now. So they're going to be like, why, why is this happening? Like, why are they doing this to me? It's like, <laughs> let's just get to the movie, you know, yeah. whereas back then it was relatively new and people were just kind of taking it for what it was. And then eventually, you know, they got rid of it. And so they made it to where we can get the movie right away after the previews, of course, um, or the trailers. But, you know, nowadays we're just too impatient for that. I should make a movie where the credits are at the beginning like that. You should. Yeah. And see how many people leave the theater. So, yeah. They're like, oh, screw or, this. Or on yeah. their phones in the middle of the theater until the actual story yeah, begins. Which is what would happen, which is fine with me, but I just think it'd be kind of funny to do that. I mean, how many people stay for the credits I mean, in movies these days? I do, depending on I, what I just I saw and digesting everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. With with Marvel, Marvel's kind of set the standard, uh, their standard with with these post credit scenes. Not a lot of people do it now, but that's only incentive. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, yeah, exactly. And so, um, like with with Clerks Three, I just watched, and there's a post credit like be behind the scenes featurette, you know. And so that was really cool because you definitely don't see that. But that's I think that's a little bit of Kevin Smith's own ego because though I love his movies he loves to talk and he talks about himself. Right. So he's like, let's stick a beat behind the scenes thing at the end of that. It's like not anything we can't get on a, on the, on the DVD or the Blu-ray, but no, we're going to put it at the end of this movie, which I stayed and watched the whole thing. You know, it was really cool to see, but so, yeah. I wanted to mention one more thing about notorious. I don't know if it's something that other movies of the time did, but I noticed in many scenes, like they'd be sitting at a restaurant in Rio de Janeiro, Rio in Brazil or in (laughs) Madrid in Spain. And it looks like in the background, it might be stock footage of people walking about where, and then they're like on a set with a select number of actors and maybe on one other table with, no, real actors there as well. Are you guys familiar with why yeah, they a, might do that? Or is, it was a common. Yeah, that was pretty common. It's, it's just projection. So what they do yeah. is they would go out on location or whatever they wanted and film their background and get a clean plate. And then what they would do is they would get a big sheet, a big, you know, right. Uh, a big sheet, put the projector behind it and then project it onto the 
projector screen from behind these behind the the actors and so that's how they would they, and they did that for a lot of stuff they did that for car rides they did it for yeah, yeah car rides are it's way more locations. noticeable yeah um it was a pretty common trick for the time i feel like audiences probably didn't care very much i don't know i can't speak for them but especially if it's in black and white it's harder to be bothered by it but it's just something that popped out to me uh i mean it's not like they were trying to interact with what was going on in the the background they were con- focused on their conversations with 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 one another but um yeah that's a that's an interesting fact you're an interesting fact i'm trying to think of oh i'm trying to think of a film there's a there's a film with tom cruise in it i believe it's tom cruise um and tom cruise refused to 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 like come over to america he was like in england or something he was like on his vacation home and he refused to come over to america and so they did the projection trick with tom cruise (laughs) over in england you know during modern times and it looks ridiculous they just put him on a treadmill and put the projection up behind him and it looks kind of ridiculous i'm gonna see if i can see if i can sounds like tom cruise because it's kind of funny yeah that just goes to show that they still do that today Hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, so earlier we were uh, Zach, you mentioned how movies kind of helped the war effort back then, and I was actually reading before um, we started recording about about that whole thing and how the they actually um, formed in 1942 the uh, Office of War Information, um, and it served as like uh, an important propaganda agency during World War II. So they would. Um, get with the film industry to record uh, the nation's wartime activities and stuff um, so that it, you know, so it could help fund the war effort. Um, so people a, lot of would, the, a lot of these reels I would imagine would appear before movies. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we see that in movies sometimes, especially movies uh, about that time period and, you know, about the war and how, when people are in movie theaters, it's about, you know, we, we see the animated come eat our, our concessions and then we see you know the the short film about you know you need to enlist or this is what's going on and that kind of thing so i thought that was that was pretty interesting it makes sense i mean that was when world war ii happened i just um saw that in my research and thought uh that was pretty cool um 1942 though that wow it was so that was a year after pearl harbor i think I love uh, it. had such an effect on films at that time as well. Like, I feel like film noir, I'm not going to say it's direct. It's probably not the direct correlation from it, but I feel like World War II had a heavy hand in how film noir evolved in the 1940s. Like, okay. The somber, pessimistic feel at that time. And you notice a lot of the movies at the time. Zach, you mentioned it yourself, you know, it was full of like double crossing villains and yeah. women, you yeah. know, that are that are not who they say and things like that. Um, that's that's film noir for you. Yeah, exactly. And it's, <laughs> it's just like, like a manifestation. I, I feel like it was just like the manifestation of what America felt at the time. That's interesting. Yeah. 
that's interesting. I didn't never, I never thought about that, but I mean, yeah, we had a huge war going on and I guess we didn't know who we could trust. <laughs> right. I right. just like that eight, the, the whole cold war and that kind of influenced how movies were. Oh, and I found transformed. The film. I found the, the film. It's eyes wide shut. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's with uh, Nicole Kidman. Yep. Yeah. All of that, all of the scenes when Tom Cruise is walking down the streets in New York city is, is rear projection. That's crazy. Stanley Kubrick. She, yeah, I said that. Dang. Also, there's a a pretty good YouTube video, Uh, eyes wide shut rear projection. You can find it. Okay. I'll I'll check it out. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so we don't have much time left, but I did want to talk about one movie that I forgot about, but, uh, in my, in my research remembered, and I have, I have seen this movie. It's been a while. I saw it on a cruise and I was kind of getting, that was kind of when I was getting into movies. So if I have, if I watched it now, I would You've been on have a cruise? A different, I've been on several cruises. Wow. Yeah. But this was a Royal Caribbean and it's in Royal Caribbean is kind of like the, the uh old people cruise if you will like it's very it's a lot fancier than than carnival where carnival is is this big party royal caribbean is like you know we're just we're fancy so they had that's a little a, that's more my speed i'm not fancy i just like, like i just like old people like <laughs> older i people. just i just want to hang out with some old people <laughs> but they had a, a screening room a theater room in there and they were showing casablanca and so that's i went pretty saw, cool uh, yeah and i watched theater it. Yeah, it was really neat because Carnival doesn't even have that. Um, I mean, they have like the Lido deck, which is like the big deck where everybody goes and parties and has there's like pools and stuff. But they also have a huge screen that you can watch films like on the top of the ship. And it's really cool. I, I, I usually go up there and watch like films every time. So I saw Moana on a cruise ship. I saw the SpongeBob out of out of the water movie on a cruise ship like a lot of cool movies uh the live action themed film yeah i was gonna say live action cinderella i saw in a cruise ship and i also saw san andreas on a cruise ship which is funny titanic yeah well here's the thing about san andreas (laughs) if you if you've ever seen san andreas it's basically you know the san andreas fault line whatever earthquake and then a huge tidal wave and all it's a disaster movie but in the movie a cruise ship washes up into the city and like crash it. And we all, everybody on the deck just started laughing because we were on a cruise ship at the time. It was very, very ironic. Uh, but yeah, the uh, Casablanca came out in uh, 1942 told I'm, I'm reading here told, it was I told about a delusion, disillusioned uh, nightclub owner, Humphrey Brogart and a former lover, Ingrid Bergman. And that you mentioned earlier, Yes. Yeah. Separated by World War II in Paris uh, with a limited release date in late 1942 and wider release in 1943. The resident film was a timeless, beloved black and white work originally based on an unproduced play entitled Everybody Comes to Rick. So it was a really cool movie. Uh, my nieces went with me and they both fell asleep. It's like that. <laughs> like, I don't know why you came because it's a black and white movie. One thing that my students complained about in um, when I was teaching high school was it's in black and white. I'm like, yes. And they're like, oh, I don't want to. That they end up liking it like almost almost every time they end up loving the movie. So I'm like, just just wait. But there's yeah. something entrancing about black and white films. Like you'd have, you could have them on as not necessarily white noise, but it's something that you could casually try to 
soak in i feel like i don't know yeah. it's, it's it's they're not too intense well, like, I think, at least the ones i've seen i like the aesthetic of black and white you know it's it's just it's just black and white like even and i'm sorry to bring up kevin smith again but the original clerks was filmed in black and white and so it's like and that was made in 1994 and then um there was a movie called paper moon that was uh made in the seventies that was filmed in black and white. You know, it's like, I like, I kind of like the aesthetic of, of black and white because I think you can do um, some different things like maybe shooting at night and saying it's daytime kind of thing with, with black and white for the, a little bit. I mean, you can't do it all the time, but cause you can sometimes tell it's nighttime even in black and white. But um, I thought, um, I think that the, you know, kind of the aesthetic of black and white, it's kind of nostalgic as well. It gives you that nostalgic feel, even though you, you weren't alive back then. It's like, it's these older things that, you know, have so much value to them and they're all in black and white it makes you feel a certain emotion for it. I think. Yeah. yeah and, well put. Uh, Thanks. I'm, I'm excited for Oppenheimer speaking of black and white films. I feel like, I feel like Christopher Nolan's, he knows what he's doing and he's, <laughs> and he's, he's, he's like tapping laugh. into that because it's a historical piece about the, um, um, um biography. There's a biographical film about, um, Robert Oppenheimer, who was the physicist credited to creating the nuclear bomb. And he also leaked what the American scientists were doing to the Russians. Yeah. Um, so using that black and white to kind of manipulate people into feeling that, that vintage aspect. Anyway, that's just another black and white film I'm excited for. Sorry, I had to get up for a second. I heard my dog lounge and, uh, lunge at another dog, so I had to go. I'm, <laughs> I'm house-sitting for a friend right now, but she also has like four dogs, and then I brought oh. my dog on top of that. So It's a lot of children. Yeah, well, it was. it's four dogs, three fish, uh, three cats, six chickens. Six chickens? You have to care, feed the, the chickens, too? I have to feed the chickens and the fish, and I have to feed everything. Wow. So, but I also have to collect the eggs for the chickens. You're a regular farmhand, I guess. So she's paying me though, so I'm I'm okay with it. And I don't have to, you know, I live with my brother right now, and so I don't have to deal with that for now. So <laughs> I could just kind of hang out and hang out here and kind of do my own thing. So anyway, uh, didn't mean to go off on a tangent there. So you guys got anything else to say about the uh, 1940s? I will say this. I love Alfred Hitchcock. That's all. If you ever watch Alfred Hitchcock presents, um, great show. It's kind of like the twilight zone, um, where it's different. It's like an anthology series where it's every episode's different and sci- like supernatural things happen and all this stuff. So it's pretty yeah. cool. Um, I, 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 will, I can't wait till we get to, I think it's 1950s where, we can talk about Rear Window. I freaking love that movie. So anyway, sorry. I know we talked. Uh, I'm just mentioning because we talked about it earlier. Something to look forward to. Exactly. Yeah. Again, I'll just say my last thoughts about the 40s. Again, yeah, I, I'm a it. big, big fan of black and white films just in general. And Cary Grant's one of my favorite actors of, uh, I guess, the 40s, 50s um, and early 60s. Uh, it makes me having watched Notorious. It makes me want to watch more Alfred Hitchcock films and just films of the '40s of the decade uh, in general. So I'm hoping to do some binging of '40s movies here soon. 
you won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I? Like I've got a whole, I've got a whole list from this. Yeah, me too. Of films I need to watch. So. <laughs> All right. Well, great. That was the our uh, final episode of season one, and season two will release sometime in the future, uh, definitely. The future. <laughs> uh, so, thank you for listening to us ramble about the 1940s. You can uh, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, tell us, you know, anything you like, anything you don't like. Uh, if you have ideas for shows, please let us know. Um, and you can also check us out on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, whatever. What is it called? <laughs> uh, Amazon not and, and uh, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, stuff like that. So please listen to us if you if you want to leave us a review, say on on Apple Podcasts or whatever. We would love that if even if it's good or bad. Hopefully good. Um, and. Jake's giving me a weird look right now, so I'm gonna end the uh, the episode, the final episode of season one. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>